Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is the next generation of professional development in higher education. I am Dr. Laura DeVoe, and I am your hostess uh, for today's show. And I am thrilled to have our think tank back. We have Gage Payne, uh, as well as Corey Davis joining us. Corey's going to be jumping on just as the show is getting going. Um, and today, you know, we want to make sure that everyone remembers is that every month we have our think tank that comes to us. We have a revolving group of folks uh, who are here. We have some great people in the audience today. So please, if you want to come on up and ask a question and participate, please do so. A few little updates about the uh, show. We are now also streaming um, in a replay fashion on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify Podcasts, as well as on iHeartRadio Pod. And, um, you know, it is a great way to devour the shows once they are over. I see one of our past guests, Frank uh uh, Frank Ross from Butler University. He was on a few weeks ago with his staff uh, talking about their wellness program, the Swiss program. If you haven't listened to that program or any of the past programs uh, and you want to catch up, all you have to do is follow me here on Fireside and then you can actually uh, go in and look for uh, previous shows. A lot of the content is evergreen content, but we do have some things that are timely and that's that's what we use these think tank episodes for. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we need to make sure we're doing when we are looking at these, uh, these think tank episodes is we're really looking to have ourselves uh, kind of find ourselves into what are the current issues, what's happening today. And today we've got Gage Payne and Corey Davis returning to us from the uh from uh, the, the uh, excuse me, from our previous season. And uh, so Gage, why don't you take yourself off mute? Tell us any updates from the, se- the summer and tell us uh, what was your highlight of the summer? And then Corey, we'll go to you. Okay. Am I here? Yes. Okay. Uh, I think I was on mute and I should have been. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> highlight from the summer. Well, the most surprising thing from the summer is that I took a job. There you go. Um, and <laughs> it's a definitely little, a little, highlight. Yeah, and, that is the uh, highlight. Not what I planned at the beginning of the summer. And so um, as of August 15th, I am serving as associate dean in the College of Nursing at the University of Oklahoma. Um, here's a weird little tidbit for you. The year 1977 and the year 2022, the calendars are exactly the same. Oh, I know this because Elvis Presley died on a Tuesday yeah. um, in August, and that week I started my first job at the University of Oklahoma as an RA, which, wow. I, now, which I now say was my career start, right? Though yeah. I didn't know yeah. it for many years. Yeah. So I took my first job um, in the field of student affairs in the week of August 15th in 1997, and I came back and started a job at the University of Oklahoma in the week of August 15th in 2022. <laughs> I love it. Okay. And now that is exciting. You know what? I love when you tell those kind of things because you kind of look back and you say, you know, we don't have uh, our social media feeds reminding us what we were doing 22 years right. ago because we don't have that anymore. You know, we didn't have that back <laughs> right. then. So this is great. I love that you have this. That's awesome. Corey, tell us about your summer. What was a highlight and how are you doing? Yeah, Gage, that's huge. Congratulations, um, and and Laura, you're right. I, I was was not uh, even on social media at that time as well. But I do remember my first year as an RA. Um, we're we're certainly busy here uh, at work. And a highlight for our summer: um, we became homeowners. 
which oh, uh, congratulations. Yeah, which feels like millennial homeowners. It feels like yeah. we're in a zoo. Like tell your friends, it, it can happen. Um, so that's been a, a huge point in my life, and really, you know, also helps put in um, kind of perspective things I do at work. You know, and there there's a great balance between life and work and career going on. Um, and I, I I never really thought I'd get to that point. So we're over the moon. <laughs> Well, congratulations, Corey. And uh, Corey's joining us from Vermont. You're still up at Chap. Uh, where are you at? Uh, at Hi. oh my God, my brain today. Go ahead, Champlain. Corey. Where are you? Champlain. Right? Champlain. <laughs> yep. I was going to say yep, yep. Chapman, which is in <laughs> California, which is not where we're going. Okay, so it's raining here in New England, which is good. Like I, we really need the rain, but my brain is in this weird rain fog. So help, you know, I'm going to need some help today. So as with every episode of the Think Tank, we bring up a few topics. And today we're going to talk about some reproductive health, how that's affecting our students in states where they are no longer able to uh, get access. And what we see going, uh, Gage is actually in two of those states between her commute from Texas to Oklahoma. So I think it'll be a good conversation there. Um, And uh, we are going to continue our conversation about student debt cancellation. We had a great episode last week where we had two uh, higher ed folks who have applied for student loan forgiveness, and they talked about their personal journey, how that's happening, what are some of the hiccups, and I want to talk a bit about what we might be able to do for alums, for our uh, professional staff in terms of being able to support them through this between now and the October 31st deadline. And then finally, I want to talk a little bit about engagement and how engagement has come back on campus. So if you are new, if you are in uh, the show for the first time, please don't be afraid to come on up and uh, be a part of the show if you have a question or a comment. I also want to remind you that you can broadcast the show to the world when you are here in the live broadcast. All you have to do is click on the hamburger, which is in the lower left-hand corner of your phone. You click on that, you hit broadcast to the world, which is uh, got a little globe next to it. And then you can just send it off to your LinkedIn, to your Facebook, to uh, your Twitter, whatever you're interested in doing, but feel free to do that and uh, have fun with it, okay? Uh, The more people that become part of our community, the better. And uh, I really enjoy uh, having more people show up and be part of the show live, uh, as well as listen later and then send great comments. So thank you all very much. Uh, So uh, let's start with uh, the issue around uh, reproductive health access and uh, abortions. Uh, We know last spring before uh, the Dobbs decision, uh, was kind of something we had were able to really spend a lot of time thinking about in terms of the impact uh, that it was going to have on campus. We had on Beth Graham Petro, our health education specialist, who has come on the show many times, um, and we also had uh, we had Josh Grubman, who is uh, a uh, now he's up at Dartmouth University. He is uh, a lawyer and a member of the general counsel up there. And we were talking about some things that could be happening in terms of how student 
health and how student affairs might be able to continue to help our students in this time. And, you know, Gage, you're right there in the middle of, of this. Uh, your thoughts on this, you're working in an environment now where you're working with a nursing school uh, mm-hmm. at in Oklahoma. I'd like to know what what's kind of the vibe on the on the ground and what are you seeing in terms of your colleagues, people who are important in your in your network in terms of what are we doing to help these students kind of navigate this difficult situation? Because we know that on our college campuses, people are having sex. We know on our college campuses, people need reproductive assistance and and uh, health care. So talk to us about what you're seeing. And, and uh, Corey, I'm going to then jump over to you to talk about what might be happening in states where, like Vermont, uh, access is open and, and are we seeing an influx of, of services being needed in the state by neighboring states? So, Gage, go ahead. Well, you know, the... I am in a nursing school right now, but I'm not on the ground in health services. So some of this is uh, speculation, Mm -hmm. but I, I think it, I think people are being cautious. uh, Here I am being cautious, right? Uh, I think people are being cautious in how they talk with students. Um, And, you know, the, this back to back to my ancient history in my early career, but I worked early in my life in a um, my, my first official job was in a small Methodist school in West Texas, a very conservative part of the state, um, Methodist school, kind of conservative. And I, as the associate dean of students, was concerned about the number of young women who were leaving school because they were pregnant. Mm. And we had a nurse part-time. That was our, our health services at the time. Yep. And so I started giving what became known as the Dean's Talk when I went into the women's halls, only the women's halls, yep. um, and talked about making good decisions about your sex life, yeah. whether you were married or not, right? I had mm-hmm. to be very cautious about how I talked about it because I could not be seen to be condoning some kinds of behavior. Mm -hmm. And yet we needed to get some information to students who were coming from parts of the state, small communities where they didn't have information before they got to college. And I, I just can imagine this being right back there, um, that there are still students coming to college who don't have much knowledge um, about their reproductive systems. And as you look at the conversations that we're having right now, why would they, right? They're not learning about it at home. They're not learning about it at school. And they're coming face-to-face with the issues. And so that need for more conversation earlier Mm -hmm. has come back. And it's not that it ever went away, but I think we got complacent complacent thank you yep. that's exactly the word about it yep. that the reality because we had options right because there are right. many options but there are a lot of students who really don't understand how it works what they need to do and what choices they need to make at various points in their life right mm-hmm. um and so i think we've got to do a better job about talking to students frankly than maybe yep. we have i think we sort of backed off of it a little bit um mm-hmm. We need to be talking, you know, it's just like, oh, students know about safe sex. No, they don't necessarily. Um, Students don't necessarily know about good reproductive um, practices. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that's going to be the issue. Then at the back end, I think, you know, you're just going to have to be really frank that the reality is we can't help you on this. And here's some places that you can go. And that's a real change for our staff. And I think it's very hard for some people. 
That will be hard uh, for our staff and for people who are, especially those of our uh, staff who are in uh, wellness services uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, it will be huge. Uh, and I think also going to some of the work Corey does, I think that this might create a chilling effect for our students who may find themselves in a situation where perhaps they have been uh, the the victims or the survivors of a sexual assault or sexual violence, and now they find themselves in a situation where they need other care. Right. Um, and our uh, ability to navigate that on campuses is going to be that much more tricky uh, in terms of our Title IX folks, how they're communicating with our wellness services folks. Um, and so, you know, Corey, thoughts on that? And also, you know, what I posed to you earlier to consider is uh, how some of the states uh, like Vermont, where you are in Massachusetts, where I am, are going to be seeing an uptick of students. Uh, potentially, I've already heard of students saying, you know, I'm going to school in Massachusetts. My, I'm from a place where uh, abortion is no longer legal. And um, I'm planning on being a place that if I have to host students and bring other people in to, to uh, help people in my life, um, I'm going to do that. And I've already heard that uh, on one of the campuses I'm doing some work. So, Corey, what are your thoughts on, on how this might complicate uh, our world going forward and even in states where uh, Roe has been codified or abortion remains legal? Yeah, and that's definitely uh, making that codification in Vermont state law, I believe, is up on going to be up on the ballot come November, which I, I would imagine that it would pass just knowing kind of the, the political realities here in Vermont. And Laura, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Last week, I you know gave part of our Title IX presentation to all of our incoming new students. And for me as a, as a professional and a practitioner, I didn't have to think about or consider my geography in talking about all the different supports as our students engage across the spectrum of sexual behavior or sexual activity. I could maybe speak more comfortably or I didn't have to make a political calculation or political decision. Um, we haven't or, or I haven't been part of conversations or haven't thought far down the road of, you know, it, what if a student hosted other students or, or friends or family from other states and how might those other states try to pursue any type of action to provide a safe harbor or any type of medical procedure here in Vermont that they might not be able to um, get in the state that they're coming from. I think too, um, kind of, and it kind of ties a little bit into student engagement, I think you know, as these decisions have continued um, to happen, I think we'll probably see more and more students making enrollment decisions based on their political values. And that's not necessarily tied to maybe an institution, but maybe it's a, a region of the United States or or a, um, a particular state in and of itself. Um, I would imagine and, and hope I could imagine, but I hope it doesn't happen that maybe that will increase more polarization you know people will continue they'll they'll take their tuition dollars and they'll go to places that will you know support their beliefs and places that support their beliefs as well um <clears throat> you know i think we're also probably and engage i think might be getting into this as well the university of vermont's college of medicine is a third of a mile up the road here dartmouth college geisel school of medicine is a couple of hours away and i'm curious how this might change um like graduate medical education uh, I, I you know I, I work very little with grad students and professional students but even preparing to talk about this topic that was on my mind 
Um, you, know, you know, when where do those professionals see careers? Where might they really have a passion to go work with maybe underserved communities or different communities, but communities perhaps that are very um, ideologically and politically different than who they are and how do we support those folks and how do we even get those practitioners to talk about all kinds of medical care with the knowledge that those medical procedures are restricted depending on states and regions. I appreciate Oh, go ahead. Gage. I, was just gonna I don't, say, I don't know what the decision is in the, on the training, but the question I have is where do you get the training for what are, regardless of being connected to pregnancy, legitimate medical practices right. and that, that women often need that have nothing to do with pregnancy. Right. And so, I mean, the, the ramifications for education and um, practice and what we do are, are enormous. And I don't know, I'm not in the middle of those conversations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on the curriculum and the educational piece, but you have to know they're on people's minds, right? Because you have right. to grapple with, you can't just pretend it doesn't exist. It's not an issue right now. Yeah. One of the, the shows we're working on is we want to bring in some folks from uh, graduate programs, uh, people who are on the ground in terms of being able to provide uh, nursing and uh uh, de- uh, doctoral uh, candidates, uh, medical doctor candidates to this idea of what are good practice, what should they be learning um, if they're in a state that's kind of putting their finger in everything and saying you can't do this, what does this mean for their graduates um, and what does this mean for even things like uh, rotation so if a student right. is you know going into uh, their rotations and where they're going to do their residency and they're moving from say a, a school in Texas and they're going to a school in Maryland or a hospital in Maryland where they they do have access to reproductive health care, more, more access to abortion, et cetera. What does this mean for the candidate? Do they even right. get looked at in terms of like trying to get matched in programs? Is this going to hurt matching? Is this going to hurt a uh, long time standing uh, ability for these folks to have all of the skills that we expect doctors to have uh, when they graduate from medical school? So I think this is a bigger picture uh, in terms of the education we're providing to our graduate students. And so we're working on that for future episodes. But I think this is going to be complex in a variety of ways. Um, not only what are we providing on our campuses in terms of health access, how does this impact our Title IX work? How does this impact our uh, work with the communities? Uh, what does this mean for all of us? And, and to your point, Corey, I think it will have an impact um, in terms of where people find their way. And we talked about this in the previous episode when we discussed this even in the, in the infancy of this decision of are we creating a further divide of access to education? Uh, you know, if someone has money, they come from means that their families are like, I don't care, my kid's going to go to school in whatever state I send them, this doesn't affect them. But for a student who may be from Louisiana, have to go to school in Louisiana, uh, and now gets pregnant on uh, while they're in ca- uh, campus, uh, while they're enrolled, and they have to take a step out, and they cannot get back into their educational kind of groove for a while, what does this mean for them? How do we make sure that these students complete their education? Um, and uh, what are we doing to help support them? So there's a lot of this that there are, there is so much of a splash zone of this. And for people who are 
only thinking about the one dimension of this, which is the the wellness piece, um, that's a huge piece, but there is a ripple effect that's going to impact a lot of what we're dealing with right now. Yeah. yeah and Laura, you, you make me think of as well, I don't know, you remember, you might remember, you might've been there um, when NASPA was in Arizona, like six yeah. or eight years ago. And they had the big kind of like, like personal identity or where are your papers kind of thing. And there was a lot of conversation about, are people going to go to the conference? I think similar conversation with Texas or in the state of California, maybe wasn't sponsoring state travel to particular states. Nope. Does, does this become, you know, another aspect of that? You know, does the state of Vermont, you know, bar people from going to states that do, you know, limit reproductive freedom or reproductive choice. I, I don't know. Right. Absolutely. Well, and I wonder, you know, it's it's very front of our minds, but I wonder how many rising seniors are thinking about this as something that is a consideration for them. I'm I'm as concerned about or maybe more concerned, less about students choosing not to come to school in a state because of the states, but getting there and not understanding that it might someday have real consequences for them and they're in the school and then they have to deal with it. I mean, I think, I think I, I suspect there will certainly be some people who say, heck no, I'm not going to those places, but Mm -hmm. I suspect more people will be in the, in the place that you've talked about that they're going to a school in part because, you know, five actually leave Texas. Mm. Um, you know, they, it's hard to leave, um, this region. And so you don't really even think about that because, you know, that's not going to be an issue for me. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm not going to have that. You know, we don't believe in that, that that's Mm going to be a question that we have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And then you have to deal with it right in the middle of your, of your school life. And so, um, I, I, I would be, I'd be, I'll be interested to see how much there's a shift. I suspect there's less than we imagine, but more issues, mid midway through yep. than the really the changing enrollment demographic. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I realized, I think my, I think my comments, you know, came in very lopsided and I want to try, try to balance that out because I imagine many of our students and our employees would feel as though this decision was a good decision Absolutely. And, and, and the right decision and how, you know, as we go forward till, you know, perpetuity, however long, you know, to right. make sure that people are comfortable and able to share their perspectives and viewpoints in a respectful way. That also I could imagine running into a lot of cancel culture that can oftentimes yeah. come up. Uh, 2024 election is coming up. You know, those are things we're already talking about and how do and will and should campuses provide space to have respectful dialogue. Um you know, and, and, and across employees as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it does impact people very personally. They're very personally um, held feelings on all sides and everything in between. And I think it would be very easy for us to fall into kind of a, a liberal, capital D, democratic mm-hmm. um, slant on things. Uh, so that's why I'm over here trying to, trying to kind of walk myself yeah. a little bit back from. Well, but I think it's also, and I, and I appreciate what you're saying, Corey. And I think a lot of times people think higher education is this liberal bastion and that people who have maybe a different political viewpoint don't get to be heard as much. And I, and I, uh, think that we need to be thinking about how do we create and how are we looking at the whole process of how we encourage dialogue, civic engagement, 
getting people out to vote and and be heard and have be a place where there's actual uh there's actual con- conducive and civic and and frankly kind conversations that are happening on our campus rather than shutting people out. And, you know, I was talking to a colleague uh, a few weeks ago about uh, having staff uh, who are hired uh, within their staff who may have extra have views that are considered to be quite conservative. And what does that mean in terms of the delivery of service, listening to students, making sure that students who uh, need proper assistance are getting it. Um, And their concern was, well, I don't know if this person can actually deliver those services. And I said, then your training is wrong. (laughs) You need to look at your training. You need to think about how you train folks. What are the expectations? People don't all have to be part of a specific political um, bent in order to provide these services. You need to have services and you need to have, uh, you know, expectations and processes that provide uh, people with the outcomes that we are trying to get them to. And if those outcomes are raising a sense of understanding about people's uh, resources, whether it be that people feel safe on the campus, whether it be whatever those things are, you have to, you have to deliver training and processes that get you to the outcome, regardless of the human that is doing it. Okay. And you need to make sure that you're training properly. Um, and you know, it is, we need to be able to, we have done a pretty job over the last decade of bringing in voices that are counter and whatever counter is, whether counter is super liberal, whether counter is super conservative, we don't do a good job with it overall. Lots of campuses kind of flounder their way through it. And, and now may be the time, and we'll, we're going to talk about engagement in a bit, but now might be a time as we're looking at engagement and what does it mean to bring political speakers or contrary speakers or whatever that might be to campus, what does that look like and make sure that we create space uh, for uh, opportunities for discussion. Um, but I think we also have to be super careful about giving validity to things that are just frankly wrong. Like if a, if someone's out there saying that, you know, we'll take it to the vaccines for a minute, that vaccines have a chip in it and it allows for the government to, you know, track you, that is not true. And so there's a point where we have to say, I'm fine with having a a debate, having a discussion, having contrary opinions, but we're not going to encourage lies. And that's one of the things that we have to be careful about. And I think that in a campus where you are here to encourage people to develop their critical thinking, learn what's going on, develop their opportunity to debate. We have to also say, we're going to do this and we're going to do it well, but we're not going to encourage lies because lies don't actually help in the discourse. Lies actually create division. Um, Corey, engage, and then we're going to move on to the next point. Corey, thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, Laura, Laura, you know, you and I've known one another for a long time, and and nearly everything you've ever said has always really landed well with me. Um, nearly, and for, <laughs> <laughs> clearly, I'm like, still here. Nearly, okay, I'm going to text you later and say what the. Yeah. F- what didn't nail? What didn't land? Because I need to know what didn't land. Oh, and, no, and, no, yeah. there's no reason. To, no, I could toss that 2013, 2017. <laughs> just purely, purely joking, purely joking. You know, I, I as I think we've seen with politics, you know, in in I think all the 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 nuanced treading and understanding that we could do, there are still going to be folks who would say, well. You know what? It's my sincerely held belief that you're wrong and I'm right. Mm-hmm. It's my sincerely held belief that I did my research and you are just a big tool of the government, um, and and they're they're not gonna listen or not gonna be persuaded by by much of anything. Um, but I, I I like your idea of you know getting people to to practice a lot more because we're gonna need that practice when it really matters and it and it seems to really matter a whole heck of a lot recently um and you know, i think we're 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 kind of losing like lower risk low hanging fruit to practice engaging with with people who think differently and whose background is different yeah. than our own um you know and i'm thinking i can even think about like around the lunch table conversations i and colleagues might have you know if we're out at target or walmart and even those two choices or that choice can be seen as a political statement whether you go to target or go to walmart um so yeah those are just a couple of things that come to my mind gage thoughts on that and then we're going to move on to student loan debt i don't know that i have anything profound to say except that i I don't even know that we can, uh, uh, you know, that when you say Target and Walmart and it, people that can that can have be fraught with meaning. I, I wonder where we can help students practice this. What are the things that are important enough that we care about them, right? So that it's it's a meaningful conversation, not just practicing over whether we like apples or oranges, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet not so loaded that our full emotional content comes to bear. You know, what, what is a non-personal topic right. <laughs> um, to do, to practice with? Because, because there's, it feels like there's very little right now yeah. that is meaningful and not kind of loaded. Right. And so this and idea. And also you want it to be authentic. You want right, people right. to be able to come out of this and say, that actually was a good conversation. Right. Yeah. And so finding ways to help students do this, um, you know, one of the things I've tried to do is in various contexts is no longer talk about having town halls. Yeah. Because the town hall format is designed to have usually somebody on stage who's the expert, the decision mm-hmm. maker, the administrator, the viewpoint holder, and then everybody else in the audience yells at them, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one-way conversation at best. Yeah. Um, whoever's talking, can we put people in the circle and actually have a conversation? Can we, mm-hmm. can we create a different method of discussion yep. that's really countercultural that mm-hmm. says, I mean, you know, it's, it sounds hokey, but it works when you have a talking piece. I'm the only one who gets to talk. And then we pause for a moment and then somebody else gets to talk. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be about what I just said. It can be about whatever they want to talk about so that it's not this polarized give and take, but it's a chance for me to reflect on a topic and share it and listen 
to you reflecting on a topic. Mm -hmm. The purpose isn't to change anybody's mind. It's just to listen and learn. And we have not, in my experience, created spaces like that. We only seem to know how to create the ones that look and feel polarized. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you've seen, I mean, this gets a little specific, but if you've watched any of uh, Beto O'Rourke's conversations, he stands in the middle. Yeah. He takes all comers and he listens to what people says and he responds mostly respectfully. He got a little mm-hmm. got a little upset at a heckler one day. He was laughing at something yeah. that you shouldn't be laughing at. I have yeah, to agree. Yeah. But mostly he listens and responds respectfully. And even though it's him in the middle and them, but it's a it's still a different model yeah. than the traditional um, I'm standing up here politicking in his mm-hmm. case. But, yeah. you know, can we can we create some different models of conversation in our campus that have a structure that is imposed mm-hmm. that allows for a different kind of interaction? Yeah. And I don't see that happening much. Yeah. And I think that there is a room for that, too, within terms of what do we do to bring what do we bring to our campuses to engage our students, um, you know. I'm a I'm an aficionado of stand up comedy. I love stand up comedy. If I'm if I, I just think it's one of the greatest art forms out there. But there is a lot of conversation out there about what is appropriate, yep. what's not appropriate, and uh, this going to Corey's point about what's canceled and what can you can you can't you not say. Um, and ultimately, you know, in my mind, is that comedy, like any other art form has to evolve. And there's certain things that you can talk about now that you couldn't talk about 25 years ago on the same side. There are certain things that you don't talk about now or that aren't appropriate anymore because we don't use that language or we Mm -hmm. don't call somebody a certain thing. So instead of thinking about all the things we can't say anymore, one of the things I try to do is say to people, what can we talk about now? We just spent the last 25 minutes talking about how are we going to talk to students about reproductive health and what are we going to do to talk about uh, with our students who are are survivors of sexual assault. And when I first started in this field, no one talked about shit. That's true. Right? So now we can talk about it. And I think that that's the kind of thing is we have to kind of build our brain around not the things we can't talk about anymore. It's the things we can talk about. Our language is different. It's fuller. It's more expressive. It gives us more options. Now, going to Gage's point earlier, we still have to be cautious because of certain legal limits in some of our states. But I think we're smart enough to come up with a way of, okay, this falls within the legal limit and... I'm able to provide the services to the students that we right. need to, to provide. Um, and so we need to do that. It doesn't mean we don't keep fighting for the things that we think are priorities and important. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about student loan debt. I want to, to turn our attention, but I want to just welcome people again to this is the September think tank. We are, we are joined by Dr. Corey Davis and Dr. Gage Payne. There's lots of doctors up on this stage and uh, love having them here. We are here every month with the think tank talking about some of the top issues of uh, the day as it relates to higher education. If you are a new uh, listener to Office Hours with Dr. I want to uh, thank you for being here and hope that you join us uh, every week here on 
Fireside Chat. Make sure you're following me. That way you'll get alerts when shows are scheduled. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about student loan debt. Last week, we had a great episode where we talked to two borrowers uh, who were in very different uh, times of their lives uh, in terms of age, in terms of where they were in the pecking order of the institution, what people were looking for in terms of their next role, but also this idea of how are they going to maybe get that uh, student loan forgiveness uh, and especially the public service loan forgiveness program. Uh, that's where we were spending a bit of time on. I want to shift our attention to, we know that uh, the Biden administration's um, executive order as far as student loan forgiveness is going to be challenged. We know that. So we, we don't know exactly what the rollout's going to be like and that sort of thing. But I want us to think about a bit is what could we be doing better as we look back on what's happened with public service loan forgiveness? What could we be doing to support our former students? What could we be doing to maybe use this as a kind of an encouragement of students who may a lot of, as we know, a lot of people who have student loan debt never got a degree. These are people who may have done only a, one semester, uh, but they are still floating some, some debt out there. What could we be doing better to um, provide, uh, you know, frankly, higher education with an opportunity to say, hey, we're not just the bad guys. Uh, we want to help with this whole thing. Uh, one of the things I'm quite disappointed with with the public service loan forgiveness program is that I am not seeing and, and Gage and Corey, if you're seeing it on any campuses you're affiliated with, please let me know. But I am not seeing a lot of colleges out there uh, saying to their administrative staff who uh, may actually uh, uh, qualify for uh, public service loan forgiveness uh, with opportunities to say, hey, this is what we're going to, we're going to do a seminar in how to get it done. We're going to have a point person in the HR office to help you get all the paperwork you need. We're, I haven't seen anything like that. And I sure as hell haven't seen our professional organizations jumping in. Um, so talk to me about that, but also talk to me about like, as this thing goes out, our colleges are going to get calls. We're going to get uh, people saying, what do I do? What do I do? Thoughts on how we can kind of position ourselves in a better way to help our students and our alumni. Um, I want to start with Gage and then go to Corey. I was hoping to hear from Corey and hear what bright ideas he had. Because <laughs> um, the reality is, I think you're right. I, I've not seen that. Now, um, I might not have. I'm uh, in full disclosure right now. I'm, I'm a little immersed in, in the fire hose of my new position. but. Yeah. But the reality is I'm not seeing that. I'm not reading about it. I'm not, I mean, I think, and I may be shortchanging my financial aid colleagues, but I, I think financial aid's kind of like we deal with you during the term of your college yeah. experience, right? And after that, there's really nothing. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, in fairness, that's pretty much accurate. But um, I don't see them as thinking of, the, of needing to reach out. Right. Um, I wish the, there's a huge place for alumni um, mm -hmm. organizations to do this. And, you know, and the trick to do it, of course, is not to do it and then turn around and ask for the donation, mm -hmm. um, which is what everybody will assumes their alumni association is going to do. And so, you know, often it's like, well, I'm still paying off my debt. Why would I give? Well, you know, maybe I can help you with figuring out how to do this. And then I don't ask you, but you are in a better position to give the next time, right? You know, right. so do something truly um, altruistic 
in the moment, don't ask for something on the backside. Um, But I would, I would really, I'm with you. I would really like our alumni associations to step up in this area. And I haven't seen anybody talking about uh, the work that we do as being connected to the service part. I I agree with you. I agree with you. Corey, any thoughts on this? Uh, Gage, I don't have a, a silver bullet, so maybe we can talk offline and then come back <laughs> together. The three of us can write a book and go, on, go, go. on the road. Exactly. And there we go. Our millions. I, I'm, I'm over, I'm not over here. Make millions. How am I going to tell you this? You're not going to make millions. <laughs> make hundred thousands? I don't maybe know. Come ten, on. Maybe, tens, maybe a Starbucks tens. gift card. That might there be about That's all fine. you get, but go ahead. All right. We, we can start small. Uh, I'm over here. I'm over here doing the math for, I remember paying $1.99 a credit hour, uh, $199 per credit hour when I was in college and doing the math here right now, it looks as though tuition at my alma mater for undergrad in-state students is exactly doubled over the past 15, 16 years, let's say. And for me, I I can't imagine being a VPFA or or a chief financial officer because you're, you're, you're seeing the headlines, college costs so much. You have operating expenses, you have people's um, livelihoods and salaries and benefits and insurances and all that. And then you have students who you're trying to balance out what's the price point. What's the point that are going to get people to take advantage of our opportunities, but maybe kick a little bit to our our deferred maintenance, maybe a little bit to the endowment. And I can't imagine how those conversations are going and, and what's that looking like. And one of the pieces that I really haven't seen a whole lot dive into is what are institutions doing about costs? Right. Um and NPR. That's, that's one of the problems with this whole conversation, which you and I yeah. we've had this conversation, is yep. that I am not anti giving uh, people some wiggle room here and breathing room. That I'm not a problem with. The the bigger issue for me is this doesn't get to the ba- the base of the problem, which is the cost. Well, okay, right. so let me get on my soapbox here for Go. a second. <laughs> okay, so we know I'm the senior member of this panel. Yes. Well, so we I don't went, know that. We do know yes, that. Yes, yes we, we do. do know that. So <laughs> when I I went to my undergraduate at the University of Oklahoma, I paid out-of-state tuition. I came back to Texas uh, where I had gone to high school and my, was my state of residence for law school because I could pay in-state tuition. Mm. In 1979, I paid $60 for one semester tuition in law school. I paid about $250 in fees. Even in 1979 dollars, if that $60 paid for a credit worth of right. instruction, I'd be surprised. Right. I was being subsidized by the state. I was being subsidized. My education was subsidized by the state. Mm-hmm. And, and the math, I mean, the, the inflation math will not allow that. Right. But the difference in where we put our dollars mm-hmm. when I went to school and put myself through two years of law school working as a halftime hall director. Right. It's not, it's not possible anymore. No. And so the, the whole dynamic of how we, we know this, change from a public good to a private good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we blame the schools for charging too much. Right. Then we blame the, the people who took out the loans for not paying them back. Right. And in reality, we have changed the entire funding and payment structure so that it disadvantages people. 
mm-hmm. and individuals who participate. And it doesn't exactly do great things for the people who work for it, right? No. With, the, with the salaries. No. So, I mean, to say the system is broken is to, is to say a truism and something that's obvious, but the difference in what um, I experienced and what people even five years later experienced is something that gets forgotten in this equation yeah, and or not talked about. I don't know if it's right. forgotten, but it's certainly not talked about. It's not. And, and, and I think that, you know, and when so this you, relief yeah. thing, mm-hmm. all, almost, almost sort of begins to get us back to the idea that the government's helping us get education, right? Right. Well, and there's the public good piece, but also, you know, um, my point in this whole thing is I believe that we should be, first of all, states need to start to fund their state institutions. When I look at some states where they're putting in less than 5% of the right. overall operating cost of the of the campuses, that's absurd. Right. Okay. So now we're now we're throwing all the the funds back on the shoulders of the of the students who are enrolling. Right. Um but then the other piece of this is we keep pushing. It's almost like the we always in, encourage the the schools to get better. Wouldn't it be great if we said to students if you graduate in less than five years, you get your, you know, you finish in five years. This means that you don't have to start paying back your federal loans for two years until after you graduate. So that way you have two years of building some personal wealth rather right. than six months. Why aren't we putting it back in the hands of the student and really encouraging that to happen because students will be more likely to say, nah, you know what? And and when I hear people say, oh, well, you know, students may, may want more time to kind of figure out their major and all that kind of stuff. I get it. Student development, they're going to make some changes. They're going to do some things differently. But ultimately, if the student cannot finish in less than five years because of some rigmarole at the institution, the institution needs to start to, to take a, take uh, ownership of that and be able to make sure I say, we've got to do our best to make sure these students graduate um, and uh, not just pass them along, but we have to make sure that they are ready to go um, and do whatever we can to allow for that, especially in some of these states where we say, oh, you have free community college, and then you can go to a four-year institution and get your uh, bachelor's degree and I hear a lot of stories in a lot of states, including my own, where people started in a t- in the community college system, and it ended up taking them six to seven years to get that that bachelor's degree. That shouldn't be the case. Corey, you're the last comment, and then we're going to go on to student engagement. Yeah, I'll say Laura, you know, when I when I graduated undergrad, that six month deferment period was very much burned into my mind of I better have something planned mm-hmm. for that period of time. And I like I like the sounds of that two year year gap extending that engage you know I, I love a good calculator so I'm over here and I'm looking at $60 <laughs> in, in 1979 is yeah. still only worth $244.86 today right there you That's go right it's it's bonkers okay so we're going to go to student engagement but before that speaking of student engagement i want to plug the commit to excellent national national leadership conference which is coming up in my hometown of boston massachusetts november 3rd to the 5th we have a fantastic uh bunch of folks on the faculty uh, including myself but uh you know we want you to know about this conference nancy hunter denny was on our show last spring uh and 
And I will tell you that this is going to be an incredible three-day experience here in the city of Boston. Uh, we have Nancy, we have me, we have uh, Michael Miller, we have a whole bunch of people from the the leadership component of higher ed. And if you are looking for ways to engage your student leaders, give them some place to go. There is no place better than New England in the, in the fall. It is a great time to be here. And so uh, there'll be more information on that in my uh, Substack. So you, if you're a subscriber to my Substack, you'll see more information on that. Or you can go to nancyhunterdenny.com. So that's Nancy, N-A-N-C-Y, Hunter, as in I'm going hunting, Hunter Denny, D-E-N-N-E-Y.com. So um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, where we're ending. And I know Gage is going to have to jump because she has a, a, a hard stop. But we are going to talk a bit about engagement. Uh, our campuses are back in a more before the pandemic normalcy this fall. Um, and I have the uh, great and good fortune to be working with three campuses uh, right now, as well as teaching on a fourth campus. And I'm seeing things uh, on the campuses, and I'm also seeing things uh, on my social media feed where I'm seeing inflatables back on campus, big welcome events, all that kind of thing, biggest class ever, convocations. For the last couple of years, we didn't have that because of uh, COVID protocols um, and also impacts on our, um, our uh, enrollment. And so Gage and Corey, I'm gonna start with Gage because I know you're gonna have to jump, but I want your thoughts on how do we, uh, how are we going to be welcoming our students back while at the same time making sure that our sophomores and junior students are not feeling like they were given a raw deal and and try to re-engage them in something they may not even have thought about engaging in to begin with, which is life on campus in a very different uh, way. So Gage, I'm going to start with you and then we're going to go to Corey. Okay. Well, thanks. And then I'll jump off. So I, I will say they were given a raw deal. I mean, mm. It's legitimate for them to feel that way. Yep. Um, the other thing is I've been advocating almost since the beginning of COVID that it's a time to, to see what things we can let go of, yep. um, what things that we've always done that we don't have to do anymore or that we don't have to do in the same way anymore. So I think, you know, that's always a legitimate question to ask, but it particularly is now. The other thing that I'm seeing and hearing more than anything is that, um, particularly on schools that had really strong sort of farm systems, education ways, helping student leaders grow up into various jobs on campus, that yeah. all those and, and training for orientation leaders, all sorts of things, you know, sort of that leadership chain mm -hmm. was broken. Yep. And Very much that so. to me, I think, is, is a really critical issue for that engagement piece, both in the experience those students have and as well as those that they provide to others. And so really thinking about what those juniors missed um, and what we need to help them with so that they're ready to be effective leaders this year. And then how do they help teach what they didn't learn mm -hmm. um, along the way? So that really thinking about that continuum of experience that our students have and what happened to that and what we need to think about to fill in that. And that's whether that's a student leader or um, somebody who lived in a dorm for two years and is now living on in an apartment complex mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and doesn't feel connected to campus at all. Are we reaching out to them? So part of that is just looking at that continuum of experience and thinking about what got missed and what's reasonable and possible to 
recreate in a different way because the yep. same way won't work. I absolutely agree with you. And I know Gage, you have to jump off. But one thing I want to kind of say is that idea of why are we repeating some of the things that we don't need to bring back? But one right. of the things we should be bringing back, um, I know campuses used to have this, I know some campuses still do, is this kind of idea of what does the X student at X university. So, you know, if I'm at say Dartmouth college up in New Hampshire, what should the four year experience of the Dartmouth college student take, uh, uh, encompass yeah. and what should that student experience be like? And we want to make sure that if they say, well, that usually happens in the freshman year. Well, don't frame it that way. Right. Instead of saying, oh, this is a first year student activity. This is something you should do then saying every student who goes to Dartmouth university should be able to say they've done these six right. things. And what does that look like in terms of bringing people into that? And we yeah. need to be more intentional about those things. But I am going to reinforce your point, which is some of this shit does not have to come back. <laughs> and we need to just say, and I said this to you in the prep, we need to be able to say to ourselves, are we trying to bring this back for us? Or we actually think this has value to right. our students. Yeah. Uh, so Gage, we'll see you next month on the show. Congratulations Bye. on your new role. Thanks. And, uh, Corey, we're bumping over to you. Sure. And Laura, you make me think of this past year or 2021, uh, 22, the members of the Champlain College student engagement orientation folks really both provided a new and incoming student experience, but also recognized the sophomores and upperclassmen did get a raw deal, yeah. as Gage had mentioned, and create a distinct and standalone and separate second year experience, which makes me think of there was a book talking about supporting sophomore students in college from five or six years ago yeah. that kind of came around as you know the forgotten generation or they use something a little bit more scientific than that i think the book has a yellow cover i'm not remembering yeah. it as well <laughs> i know exactly um, what you're talking about <laughs> but i yeah it's it's yellow maybe it's orange writing um but i but i think you know leveling with our students and, and recognizing yeah we understand that the past couple of years might not have been what you had originally signed up for right. but or and stick with us. Look at all of these cool things we're going to be bringing back for right. sophomore, junior, senior year, and beyond. Right. Um, and I think to get folks who stuck with us last year and the year before, you want to make sure they get a good return on their investment and say, you know, we we you did us a solid by sticking by us through a difficult year. We're going to double or triple down junior and senior year in events and giveaways and mm -hmm. things or thank yous or commemorations. Um, I bet that would go a long way for our students and, and also be able to provide things that are achievable. You know, I know a variety of institutions got good and bad feedback for sponsoring class of 2020 graduations months after the fact. And, and so many people were upset and say, you know, it's not, it's not the same. It could have been different. And it's not the same. It's never going to be the same. And I think the institutions were doing their darndest to provide that experience for folks. And maybe they could have done a better job saying, you know what, class of 2020, 2020 you drew a tough hand. Mm -hmm. Really bummed, really sorry about that. You might not have been the experience you wanted. Here are things that we can do and, and fully just try to leave it out there on the table. Right. I think the other thing, and I would say this, is that what we need to be also looking at is that that sophomore class and the junior class who really kind of got the shaft as far as their first few few years on campus or their first year on campus, um, or even their first just few months on campus, 
don't just say to them, these are things that we would like you to participate in, or we're going to add some things. If you are going to start something new, if you are going to create a new option, whether it be uh, a new academic program, uh, a new study abroad program, I've heard a lot of schools say, we're still not sure, like we have brought back study abroad, but there's people who are hesitant about going a full semester or a full year away. You know what we're going to do? We're going to do a 10 day program. Okay, great. If you're going to do a symposium kind of uh, workshop type of uh, thing where you're going to then have people then go for a shorter period of time, but it still counts towards a full semester of, of uh, contact hours, um, what does that look like? And limit the people who can apply to the students who got screwed in the last stuff. You know, I mean, I hate to say it so bluntly, but you have to be more intentional about who you're opening these things up to. Um, and don't give it to the first year students who right now are just, you know, brimming with excitement and they've got all these things thrown at them, right? We have to be looking at our sophomores and juniors who may feel slighted. Um, and so throw things, some things at them to begin with. And the other thing is don't make it feel like an add-on. You want it to look like, you know what, we want you to not only feel that uh, return on investment, but we also want you to feel that affinity. And this is a time for us to be looking at affinity, to be looking at connection, to be looking at opportunities to heighten that, which right now to what Gage said before, I think it would be interesting for campuses to say, who have we lost off campus? Who has gone into the off campus kind of push and not engaged fully on campus? And what can we do to try to re-engage them? That may not mean they have to move back on campus, but what does their off campus experience look like and how do we bring them in? Corey, thoughts? Yeah, Lori, you, you make me think of as well of, you know, kind of what we were talking about earlier. There's not a lot of, not as much positivity maybe going on as I think we would all probably hope or, or common aspirational good things that really bring people together. Uh, and I, ha I had the fortune to speak to our RA team a couple of months ago and they were going through, or last month when they were going through training. And I started off in kind of a somber note, and that's not my usual style to say, Firstly, we want to recognize this has been a lot. There's a lot going on. There is war in the world. There is, you know, certainly you're stressed about classes. You're in RA training. There is a pandemic going on, all of these aspects. And I, and I asked the group to take a moment of quiet reflection and think about if they themselves had lost someone, if they knew a parent or a partner or a relative, or just to be able to sit with whatever thoughts and feelings might have come up, to try to recognize that and not just say, well, the first years are here and they're excited, so everyone should be excited by now. Right, right. And I, I think the team really appreciated that because we do ask a lot of student leaders across the field. And the past couple of years, you know, I've caught an RA and say, hey, could you go deliver a meal to this person, maybe leave it outside their door, or oh hey, did you you know catch up on someone to make sure they filled out their COVID compliance form or thing or you know anything um, mm -hmm. as a way to you know, kind of recognize some of the tough experiences they might have had, but also give them a little bit of TLC, a genuine thanks because I can't pay them anymore, I can't give them another piece of swag necessarily, mm -hmm. um, and to recognize and say you know what this this is kind of a tough time, and it's going to get better. Um, well, and, and, and people we really also. I, I'm going to jump on that though, to Corey. One of the yeah. things we have to do is we have to be acknowledging of the fact that our seniors, our juniors, our sophomores, and our first year students have all had a very different experience and have mm. a lot of emotion here. And what we 
oftentimes pull our student leaders say, remember your experience as a first year student? That first year experience for our sophomores and juniors is gonna be markedly different than that yes. of our first year class. And so that empathy, that relatability, all of that sort of thing is not exactly where they are at in terms of their headspace and also in their empathy in, in their empathy engine. Okay. Because they just never had that. So we have to be really cautious of this idea of asking them to do something that frankly, they don't even have the muscle memory to do because they themselves have never experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. And I think too, you know, as we talk about kind of going into this year, you know, to make sure that we're not relying on a vastly different pre pandemic experience and, and some, and, and same for, for professional staff too. say, so, Oh, you know, it worked in 2018. That was decades ago. My God. Ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we might as well be saying, well, you know what? We did this back in 1956. It was a great idea. Then. Right. Well, right. guess what? We were, it's not the right. same world. No, we were still yeah, on absolutely. the gold standard by then. It was exactly. great. Exactly. Right. <laughs> All right. So uh, I want to thank Corey. I want to thank Gage uh, for being here. And I want to plug our next couple shows that are coming up on Tuesday, September uh, 20th at two o'clock. We are going to have a show on the U.S. Department of Education completion grants. The U.S. DOE has announced a $5 million grant program to support the College Completion Fund for post-secondary success. The program targets HBCUs, tribal colleges, and minority-serving institutions to invest in data-driven reforms that will improve our completion rates. And we are going to be joined by Dr. Catherine Brown from the National College Attainment Network to discuss this program and opportunities for institutions seeking these grants. And then on Tuesday, September 27th at 12 o'clock, we did talk about uh, the elections coming up. The midterm elections and campus voting is going to be that week's uh, topic. Uh, we always hear young people don't vote, which has been a cry that's heard for far too long. But is this actually accurate? And if so, our voter registration law is working against mobilizing young voters who want to go to the polls. Um, experts from leading civic engagement and voting organizations, Civic Nation and the Campus Voter Project will join us to discuss this timely project, uh, uh, excuse me, timely topic. So next week, please join me. Uh, we are going to have a House of DeVoe episode, which is some of my former students uh, who are graduate students are going to be joining us talking about their first uh, few months on the job. And we're going to learn more about that experience. And so I hope you can join us next week on Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe right here on Fireside Chat. And please share this uh, show with your friends and encourage people to join us in the future. Have a great week, everybody. And now go out there and learn something. <laughs> <laughs>